Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. I'm going to invite you all back to your seats. This is my least favorite part of being up here is being bossy to you guys. Wow, that's loud, Joel. I actually can hear it. So come on, take your seat so we can get this party started. I, I, I believe God has a word, a good word to share. And if you have ears to hear, it can change your life. So I get the privilege of kicking this series off. So the VR series, virtual reality. Honestly, like a year ago, if someone was like, you know, it's a VR. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And I did not know what that meant. <laughs> like, oh, okay, VR. This is VR. Joel, what game are you playing? Boxing. <laughs> this is what this looks like from my living room, too. I'll be sitting there just reading a book, and this is what I see. Are you winning? Has anyone put one of these things on before? Who has war- played a game through one of these? Okay, so a few people. Well, he got this for Christmas from his grandma. And a few days later, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll put it on and see what the big deal is. Honestly, in my brain, I'm thinking, it can't be that good. So I put it on, and I was instantly transported to another world. And it was so real. And Jared and I were talking, and we're like, we can totally see how, like, you know, Bill Gates and Zuckerberg will rule the world through the metaverse because people are going to want to live there. It's pretty awesome. But the great thing about <laughs> the great thing about VR, this headset, is when you get tired, you can just take it off. You can quit. You can give up. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> Like, you don't necessarily have to finish the Star Wars mission, right? If you're getting your butt kicked, you can just be like, nope, I'm done. I quit. But that's not the case in the real world. In the real world, if you give up, if you quit things, it can affect your own life. It can affect other people's lives. It can affect the purposes and the plans that God has had for you since the beginning of time. But how many of us have ever wanted to give up? Who's wanted to quit something? Who's wanted to give up? Whether it's quitting your job, just giving up on some project you started, giving up on your marriage. Who has ever just wanted to walk away from God, this Christian life? I've had moments where I'm like, you know what, God, this just seems a little too hard. I I don't know that I even want to follow you anymore. I've had seasons where I'm like, you know what, it'd be nice just to walk away from it all, move to an island, get a job at a beach bar like Tom Cruise did in Cocktail, and the only worry I have is if some drunk person passes out on the bar. I've thought this through, asked Jared. Because it's real tempting to quit. Because life can get really hard. 
which honestly as Christians shouldn't surprise us because what did Jesus say? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But he followed that up with, take courage, be brave, because I have overcome it all. So it's only by his strength that we don't give up. A few weeks ago, Brennan actually wanted to quit something. Um, He wanted to quit basketball. So he had played basketball last year, and he really enjoyed it. And so he's like, you know, I think I'll play this year too. And we didn't realize what a drastic difference it was going to be. Because last year he played seventh and eighth grade, and this year he's a freshman, so he played high school. Well, what we didn't know is that with Christian Center, they group them all together. So you have freshmen through seniors playing on the same teams. And I got to say, the first few games, I was looking out on the court, and my heart was just beating so fast because I'm like, who are these hairy beast men (laughs) trampling my child? I mean, these guys had full-on beards, like Sasquatch tree trunk legs, barreling down the court. I know that I had many heart attacks. So he played several games. And one day he and I were sitting in the living room and I was like, oh, Brennan, you have a game tonight. Don't forget. And he looked at me and he said, mom, I don't want to play anymore. Honestly, I just want to quit. It's not fun. I'm not enjoying it. I never get the ball passed to me. I can never get any rebounds. Which to me, I'm like, yeah, no kidding. These guys are just towering over you. So me being the sympathetic mom, I agreed with him. And I said, okay. I was like, if that's really how you feel, I'm going to support you. And if you don't want to play basketball anymore, you don't have to. Well, then Jared entered the room. (laughs) And he sat down by Brennan, and he looked at him, and he said, I'm not going to let you quit. You made a commitment to play. You're going to finish this out. And Brennan was trying to protest, and and Jared's like, no, Brennan, this is for your own good. This is... This is going to build your character. This is going to help you in your future. And then Jared, you know, he's, he, he used to ref basketball for years. He played basketball. So he proceeded to show Brennan all these basketball moves, like you stick your butt way out and, and to block somebody out. This is how you stay open. Mind you, this entire time, Brennan is so annoyed, so annoyed. <laughs> Jared left to run some errands. And a little while later, I walked in to the living room again, and I looked at Brennan, and I said, I have to apologize. I'm sorry. I was completely wrong. And I said, what your dad did is exactly what a good dad would do. A good dad would not let you quit. A good dad would encourage you and teach you and help you. And he was still a little annoyed, but after a little while, he realized that his dad was right. And would you believe that that night at his game, he played differently? Did he absolutely love it? I don't know. But he played differently. He played better. And since then, in his games, he's gotten three-pointers. He's stolen the ball. He gets the ball passed to him. See, his perspective changed when his father entered the room. Once his father spoke truth over him, once his father encouraged him and gave him some tools and some weapons to use in the game, he began to see things differently. See, our perspective matters. As followers of Jesus, our perspective is actually a key component to walking in the power and authority that's available to us. 
how we see things. And listen, guys, this is a, an everyday type of thing, right? We get to choose our perspective daily. Are we going to walk in the reality of what God says in his word? Or are we going to walk in a false reality built on the lies of the world, the lies of the enemy? And see, most of the battles that we fight every day, where do they start? They start right here in our minds. 2 Corinthians says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Wow, that's a, a really small verse there, right? But what a powerful tool if we were to use it. Take every thought captive. Something comes in here, take it to the word of God and say, does this match up with what God says about me or with what God says about this situation? Take it to his truth. Because you know what? The fiery darts of the enemy, most of them, probably all of them, are headed straight here to your mind first. Why? Because if he can infiltrate your thoughts, he can influence your perspective. He wants you to focus on the giants of the world, on the giants of your life. He wants you to focus on the trouble. Why? Because he wants you to give up. He doesn't want you to engage in the battle whether it's a basketball game or literally fighting for your freedom. He wants you to come to church on Sundays, hear a good message, sing some songs, then go home and live the rest of your week out like you always do, never realizing the supernatural weapons that are available to you to fight this battle. Weapons that are available that God's like, here you go, I've got these for you. Because if you're a Christian, you're called to battle. It's a calling on your life to battle. So I want to read this scripture. It's Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. I'm going to read the Passion Translation. <clears throat> now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. That is powerful. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand -hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. So I'm going to pause here really quick because I think sometimes we read something like this and, and we, take it, we take it in, right? We say, okay, well, the battle's spiritual. So I'm going to battle this with prayer, with fasting. I'm going to intercede. And you know what? Absolutely. Those are powerful tools to use. But see, most of the time... Probably all of the time, the spiritual battle manifests itself in the physical world. That's why it says hand-to-hand -hand combat. He's not saying you're not fighting against physical things. He's just reminding us that whatever we're battling in the physical has a spiritual cause behind it. And the things that we've seen the last several years, we're going on several years now. The things that we've seen on this large scale, from masks to mandates to what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine right now, you guys, that is a picture of the spiritual realm, the rulers and principalities exposing themselves in the physical realm, in the physical world. It goes on to say, for they are a powerful class 
of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides so you're protected as you confront the slanderer. If you don't think you're called to confront things, this is telling you that's a lie. You are called to confront evil. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. So the word armor here is actually a combination of two Greek words that mean complete suit of armor, both offensive and defensive. And one commentary said this. It said, this term would have referred to the armor of the heavy troops among the Greeks, troops who were to sustain the rudest attacks, who were to sap the foundations of walls and storm cities. So see, this armor that God gives us is not just for defending ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. It's also for tearing down strongholds, for storming cities. And can I ask you this? How do you think you would do that? How, how do you tear down a stronghold? What's the vision that comes to your mind? You do it by force. How do you storm a city? You do it by force. In order to take territory that the enemy has stolen and claimed, you do it by force. Because listen, he's not going to just give it back to you without a fight. And yeah, that means that sometimes it doesn't look pretty. Sometimes it doesn't sound nice. It's usually pretty messy looking. But to be on the offensive means to be aggressive. And I know that that word, word scares us sometimes, but I truly believe that there's a holy aggression that we as Christians need to get back in order to storm the cities, in order to take back territory. No, not the aggression that the world shows us, but an aggression that says we are no longer going to be apathetic, we are no longer going to be complacent when it comes to evil or when it comes to what the enemy is doing in our own lives or the lives around us. So we've been given this armor for a reason, and the reason is you're in a battle. But see, in order to have victory, you have to see it the way God sees it. You have to have his perspective. You have to believe the reality of what God says in order to walk in the actual victory. And he says, you are more than a conqueror. That is the reality. The enemy would have you believe that you're a victim and that you're defeated. God says, I have good plans for your life. The enemy would have you believe that there's no hope, right? Nothing's ever going to change. Jesus said, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, over all the giants in your life. But the enemy would say, you're weak. You have no authority over me. You have no power. See, I think every single day it would do us good to remind ourselves of who our enemy is, right? He's the counterfeiter. He has a counterfeit for every single thing that God says and does. So for every truth, he has a lie. For every promise, he actually will give you uncertainty. For the confidence that you should have in Christ, the enemy will gladly put fear on you. And it goes on and on and on. And you know what? The sad thing is he succeeds. The enemy succeeds in our life. He keeps the territory he's stolen. He often takes back more of territory from us because of our perspective. Because we take this counterfeit reality and we start saying things like this, well, you know what? I'm just going to have to live with this anxiety the rest of my life. 
really? Because God says be anxious for nothing, but pray about everything. We say things like, you know what, I guess depression is just a cross that I carry. Really? Because Philippians says, be cheerful with joyous celebration in every season of life. Let your joy overflow. Am I saying that there's never reason to feel sad or depressed? No. Situational things like that are normal. But to identify as that and to live your life like that is not the truth of God. We say things like, you know what, I'll never be able to overcome this thing. I'll never accomplish this or that. Well, wait a second. God says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you realize that if the Israelites would have just had a perspective shift, they would not have wandered in the desert for 40 years? It was about their perspective, about how they were seeing things. So they wandered around for 40 years as a consequence of focusing on the giants in the land instead of the promise. And we're going to look at this story. I have a lot of scripture today, which I love because you know what? Let's not forget the word of God is living and active. So it's actually moving and changing things as we read it. So Exodus chapter 3. Verses 7 through 8. So the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for around 400 years, and God appears to Moses in the burning bush. So God's speaking to Moses right now through the burning bush. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt in their into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, all the ites now live. So you can be certain that the Lord hears your cries. You can be certain that the Lord is aware of your suffering and he's sending a rescue. So even before the Israelites were free from Egypt, God had prepared the promise. He said, I'm going to lead them out of Egypt and right into a land that is fertile, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that has every single thing that they need. He had already prepared the promise. So they're rescued from Egypt, spent a little bit of time making their way to the promised land. And now I want to land in Numbers 13, starting in verse 1. The Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So Moses starts to give these men some instruction, these scouts, right, of, of what to do. So skipping down to verse 19. This is Moses speaking. He says, see what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Okay, well, pause here. Didn't God tell Moses it was a land flowing with milk and honey? What's happening to his perspective here? God already told him it was a good land. It goes on to say, do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Okay, God specifically said it's a fertile land. What's happening here to Moses' perspective? It's already shifting. He says, are there many trees? Do your best to bring back samples of the crops you see. So skipping down to verse 25. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. 
This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just like God said, right? Here's, here's the fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who, who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Okay, Numbers 14, 1 through 3. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Guys, they're real dramatic. This is real dramatic. Because they're just starting to make stuff up at this point. God never told them they would die in battle. God never said that their wives and their children would be carried off as plunder. God said, occupy the land. I'm giving it to you. Their perspective was giving them a false reality. Their perspective was causing them to start making stuff up, things that were never going to happen. Okay, Numbers 14, 5 through 9. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, remember Caleb, tore their clothing they said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Two drastic different perspectives in the same story. One focuses on the giant. One focuses on the promise. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase this. Two people were focused on the promise. Hundreds, maybe thousands, were focused on the giants. So know this. If you are holding on to the promises of God, if you stand boldly on his truth, your voice might be the minority. Joshua and Caleb received and believed the promise of God, that they were being given this land, that they were to occupy it, and that God was going to give them victory over every enemy, over every giant. That was their perspective. So did they see the giants? Yeah, they saw them, but that didn't change anything for them. In fact, they called the giants prey. They knew what God had promised. They believed him. So when they saw the giants, they saw victory. When the others saw the giants, they saw defeat. One was the true reality, one was a false reality. See, what Caleb and Joshua were doing, they were actually prophesying the promise. That's a good word, 
for you guys today. They were prophesying the promise. That's what that looks like. Do you know that you can do that? You can go to God's word, you can flip it open, you can find some promises and some truth, and you can start to declare and prophesy and proclaim the truth of God's word over your life, over the nations, over your husband, over your children. Prophesy the promise. Proclaiming and declaring what God had spoken, even though it hadn't happened yet. And the other voices were acting as false prophets speaking the opposite of what God had spoken. They were the counterfeit. They were the false reality. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. At the beginning of Numbers 13, it seems that God is the one sending them out to scout the land, right? Because it says, the Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan. But it was not God's idea. It was actually their idea. God was just giving them what they wanted. Deuteronomy 1 20 through 23. So this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. I said to you, you have now reached the hill country of the Amorites that the Lord our God is giving us. Look, he has placed the land in front of you. Go and occupy it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. But you all came to me and said, first, let's send out scouts to explore the land for us. They will advise us on the best route to take and which towns we should enter. And then Moses said, this seemed like a good idea to me. Wow. Really, Moses? That you're listening to these people, the people who built and worshipped the golden calf as you were up on Mount Sinai? You're listening to their idea instead of what God spoke? Even Moses had his issues. But this sounds like the counterfeit to me, right? God made a promise but instead, they received uncertainty, right? So they thought, well, you know what? I'm not sure about that. Let's just do it our way to, to make sure. And then from that point on, it became a big confusing mess because their perspective was filtered through the fear of giants in the land, which caused them to build a false reality about stuff that would never happen. And that's exactly what the enemy wanted. It got them to quit. It got them to turn around. And the territory that should have been theirs, the cities that they should have stormed, continued to be occupied by the enemy for a while. So this chapter continues, and Moses ends up reprimanding them for not trusting God, for refusing to go occupy the land. And this is where he tells them what God said. This is what God told them. Not one of you from this wicked generation will live to see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except for Caleb and Joshua. You guys, Moses didn't even get to enter the promised land. And then listen to this part. God says, I will give the land to your little ones, your innocent children. You were afraid they would be captured, but they will be the ones who occupy it. Because remember earlier when they were whining and complaining and starting to make stuff up about what was going to happen to their wives and their children? because their perspective was off? Yeah, well, God said, your little ones, the ones you thought would be carried off as plunder, are actually going to be walking in the promise you should have walked in. So the good news is that no matter what kind of false reality you're looking through, no matter what lies you're believing, God's purposes and promises prevail. 
He will accomplish what he set out to accomplish, whether it's through us or the next generation. I don't know about you. I would absolutely love to be a part of it, Jesus. Keep my perspective right because I want to be a part of it. We get to choose. We get to choose. Are we going to be like Joshua and Caleb? Are we going to stand firm on the reality of what God has shown us, what his truth is, no matter what we see with our natural eyes? Or are we going to take the counterfeit? Are we going to focus on the giants instead of the promise? See, if you believe the promise, if you take hold of the promise of God and you never let it go, there is nothing that will stop its fulfillment in your life because God keeps his promises. See, Joshua and Caleb did get to walk in the reality of what God said. Their prophetic declaration of what God had promised did come to pass. Forty years later, 40 years later, Joshua is the one who led the little ones, the innocent children, into the promised land. Yeah, the little children were now in their 40s and 50s. Joshua was 70 or 80 years old. And guess what? There were still giants in the land. There were still cities to storm, but the promise remained. Joshua 14, 6 through 12. So they had been in the promised land now for a little while, fighting some battles, doing what God called them to do. And Caleb comes to Joshua. He says, hey, uh, remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me? when we were at Kadesh Barnea? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. But for my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly follow the Lord my God. So see, Moses told Caleb, because you believed God, you won't just get to enter the promised land. You're actually going to get a part of it, a portion of it as an inheritance. Caleb goes on and he says, Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness, today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. Now you'll remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. I'm assuming maybe some giants. But he says, if the Lord is with me, I'll drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. You guys, this is so powerful. Even after 40 years of roaming through the desert, Caleb's perspective never changed. He never stopped believing the reality of what God had spoken. 85 years old, and he was ready as ever to go drive out the giants of the land. He knew what the reality was. He knew the giants were prey to him. 40 years later, 85 years old. See, Joshua and Caleb, they saw the problems. They saw the trouble. They saw the giants with their physical eyes. 
but they knew what the reality was. The, re the reality was victory. They already had the victory. They never stopped believing that through all those years in the desert. That's why once they got to the promised land, they're like, let's go. Their perspective never changed. They stayed in the reality of what God had spoken. That is what gave them the power and the authority to walk out the victory. And as we close this out today, I just, I want to encourage you all today to check your perspective. What things are going on in your life? What are some of your problems? What are some of your troubles? What are some of the giants in your life? Because I believe that God has a promise. But you might have to shift your perspective. And I think that during this last song, I think it's a great opportunity, you guys, when we gather together, when we get in the house of the Lord and we hear a message from him to come together and say, you know what, let's do this together. Let's identify what things we seem to not be conquering in our lives. Because God says you're more than a conqueror. So let's take this opportunity during this last song to come before the Lord and say, God, this is how I'm feeling about whatever it is and say, what do you say? What's the promise you have? God, help me to change my perspective. Help me to see this differently. I want your promise. I want to see the promise, not the giant. And I think one thing that would help all of us, all Christians, is if before your feet hit the floor in the morning, if you just take a moment and remind yourself of where you sit. Remind yourself of where you sit. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with Christ, the exalted one, and we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm. For we are now co-seated as one with Christ. We are now co-seated as one with Christ. I'm going to say it again. You are now seated as one with Christ. Right now, in the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, in the Spirit, you sit in the heavenly realms with Jesus. Do you know where Jesus sits? Whew. He sits at the right hand of the Father in the throne room. Now that would be quite a perspective. I prophesy and I declare today, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out on us, God, and you would give us a throne room perspective over everything in our lives because, God, from your throne room, every single giant looks real small. Thank you for this word today, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Jesus' name.